Good morning. Great to be with you. My name is Matt. For those of you who I haven't met, today we are concluding our series called Restoration in the Church. And as we close out the series, I have a resource that I'd like to recommend. This is an old book by Terry Virgo called Restoration in the Church. Uh, This is what kind of inspired the series that we're concluding today. I don't believe it's in print anymore, but if you're interested in going deeper, I believe there's used copies you can find on Amazon, or you can borrow my copy if you'd like to give it a read. Uh, But we are not only concluding the series today, but today is also 24-hour prayer. So starting at 8 a.m. this morning and going right through today until 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, we will have people in this building uh, praying and really bringing a lot of the things that we've talked about in this series before the Lord and saying, Lord, would you make these things a reality? In our time, in our place, in our context, even in this body uh, or expression of the body that we call River's Edge, would you bring these things into reality? Um, We want to be a church that is patterned off of the New Testament church. uh, And ultimately, we want to see our city and the nations reached with the gospel and the kingdom. So there's a whole bunch of different things that we're going to be praying for over the next 24 hours. But of all the things that we will pray for uh, over the next 22 hours or whatever we have left, I think the most audacious prayer, the boldest prayer, and perhaps the most important prayer that we are going to be praying as a community is for the renewal or revival of the culture itself. The numbers are in. The Western church is uh, not only in decline, as it has been for decades, but by many accounts, it has passed the point of return in our nation. Uh, In fact, the uh, American church, uh, according to the most recent studies, is now in a place of irreversible decline based on the last few decades, but also what has accelerated over the last couple years. And the only way that that can change is through a renewal or revival within the church and within the culture. We need a move of God. Uh, There is no human effort. There are no human strategies. There are no clever advertising campaigns. There's nothing uh, that will reverse the trends that we've been witnessing apart from a move of God. And so as we uh, see the the direction that church and culture have been heading over uh, the last few decades, and in particular in the last few years, the church, what's left of the church, uh, I believe, needs to respond in two different ways to the moment that we're living in. And the first is that we need to begin seeing ourselves as a distinct and radical minority group within the culture, Uh, distinct from the culture, on mission to the culture, but separate uh, from it. And within that, our uh, church culture needs to have a clear call to die to yourself, uh, to pick up your cross and follow after him. That means that within the remnant that is the Western church in the decades ahead, uh, there needs to be real discipleship with a real call to die to yourself, involving real sacrifices, 
and an intentionally structured life around him. You cannot structure your life the way the average Western American structures their life and expect to flourish in Jesus. So that's part of being a distinct minority group within the culture. If you just wander into the culture with some sort of uh, vague uh, Christian hopes and ideas, you will get picked apart. The culture will shape you. You will not shape the culture. You need to be uh, more deeply rooted in something. Our discipleship has to become uh, almost militant in a sense, but not in the legalistic way. Uh, what that means is it has to be focused. It has to be a passion. It has to be serious. Like it can't just be a little hobby or a Sunday morning thing. Following Jesus needs to be real. It needs to be focused. Uh, we don't live in Christian land anymore. So we can't just kind of walk with the culture and, and do what it does. Now you and I are in Babylon. We are exiles in, in a foreign culture, in a foreign land. We are Daniel being thrown to the digital lions of our day. Uh, we are Shadrach and his brothers being uh, tested by the cultural furnaces that burn all around us, that want to shape us into their image. So there needs to be an internal strengthening of the church with radical discipleship at the center. I believe that's the first thing that the American church needs to wake up to in this moment that we're living in. Uh, but the second thing is that the Western church needs to pray for a move of God uh, that truly defies all human logic and understanding, that calls an entire nation out of idolatry and self-centeredness and confusion and into the kingdom of God. But rather than just uh, sending everyone off to pray for revival over these next uh, 24 hours, I want us to take the, some time this morning to get a sense of what that means. We throw around that word sometimes. Uh, what do we mean by renewal? What do we mean by revival? Uh, and oftentimes I could throw out a word like that uh, and maybe we're all thinking of different things. Or maybe some of us just don't even know what to think. Like that sounds nice, but I don't, I don't really know what it is that we're talking about. Uh, and so this morning, I'll go ahead and invite up uh, Kelly, Evan, and Coulter. And I've asked each of them to present us with one example of revival from recent uh, sort of church history, just over the last few centuries. And the reason that I want to take some time to get a snapshot of these different moments in history is that I believe they're very applicable to this moment in history, and that as we pray over the next 22 hours, I, I want us to have some, some ideas, some images that can begin sort of populating our imagination. We can say, well, it's, it's going to be different every time, but Lord, these are the types of things that you do. This is the type of thing that you're capable of. That should shape our prayers, our hopes, our expectations as we move forward in the hours ahead and even in the years and decades ahead. We need to have some picture of what it is that God is capable of. So I'll go ahead and invite the three of you guys up here. We have three different uh, revivals that we'll look at briefly, and we'll start with the oldest revival, not the oldest person. 
Maybe in spirit. All right, well, good morning, guys. As all of you know, actually, because I've been up here twice already, um, my name is Coulter. <laughs> you get to hear a lot from me. It's really fun. Um, so I'm going to be sharing with you guys a couple stories from the Great Awakening, which happened in the northeastern part of the United States. Um, one story that's super common to all of you is going to be the pilgrims setting out from the old world. Um, and they were looking to find a place where they could worship God without fear of intense persecution um, from both governmental and religious institutions. Um, so on November 11, 1620, this dream became a reality uh, when the Mayflower landed at Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts. And while it's true that initial passion and fervor for the Lord was really high when they had gone over there, um, it began to stagnate in the later half of the 1600s. Um, fast forward to 1730, and the colonies are in an immense state of apathy and spiritual decay. Um, not really that different from what you're seeing today, surprisingly. Um, it actually, kind of what happened is as you kind of moved past the Enlightenment, you had um, just a bunch of people moving away from religion. Um, and churches were way down in their attendance, um, like they are today. So it's actually not a super uncommon thing that we're seeing today. Um, it's just something that sometimes a narrative is put out um, that America was always super Christian and it never had periods where there was kind of um, a bust in these cycles that we see. So anyway, jumping back in, um, you see that it's in times when things are absolutely desolate and barren that God seems to move the most powerfully. And when he does move, because we serve a God who has a passion to be in relationship with his creation, God uses men and women like you and me to help usher in the kingdom of God. So in this particular story, God used a man named Jonathan Edwards, um, and a lot of you know him. Um, he was really shy, but a very diligent preacher from Connecticut, um, and God used him to fan the flames of revival. Uh, most of you, if not all of you, will know Edwards from his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, um, which is a great, great sermon. Um, and ironically, um, Edwards would get so nervous that he would cover his eyes when he spoke. Um, so if you read that sermon, you'd think you'd have someone standing up here, pounding the pulpit, screaming at his congregation, um, but he would never look up from his notes. He would cover his eyes and talk in a really monotone voice the whole time because he would get so nervous. Um, and God used that man, much like he used Moses, in his weakness to bring about powerful change. Um, and his sermon, when he gave that sermon, it was so convicting um, that people were clutching onto the side of the building because they thought that the Lord was going to come back and judge them in that moment. So uh, monotone voice, just preaching, and people so overcome by God that they're grabbing onto the walls. Um, I can't even imagine doing that. So very profound. <laughs> Um, but it's been estimated that of the 250,000 people that were living in the Northeast, um, 70,000 were added to churches um, over the course of a few years. So just to put that in perspective, that'd be like 2.2 million people in Washington being saved in a couple years. Um, it also was the first time that African Americans began converting to Christianity in large numbers um, because some of those pastors like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield um, were preaching to those communities for the first time. Um, his presence was so overpowering and tangible that whole church communities would feel the need to repent and turn to God. Um, it was a super powerful mood of God um, that the North, in the Northeast that's still talked about today. 
So another major character from the Great Awakening is George Whitfield. Um, and he sailed after from England shortly after everything began. So in one year during the Great Awakening, George Whitfield covered 5,000 miles in the 13 colonies and gave over 350 sermons. He's a real grinder. So, um, but it was, it was said that when he came into town, the ground would shake. People would sprint. Everyone would drop what they're doing. So imagine like 10,000 people, everyone dropping, you know, getting out of the fields and sprinting to hear a guy preach. Thousands were saved, and the rest were so expectant to see God move that they would drop everything and run as fast as they could to encounter his presence. And I think this is probably the most remarkable piece for me in this revival, and I think it really encapsulates how remarkably God was moving. You know, personally, I have a hard time imagining, you know, all the people in Spokane just, you know, getting out of work and deciding they're going to sprint to the center of Riverfront Park to hear a guy preach and who's standing on a barrel. He'd just stand up on a barrel and preach to thousands of people. And just to wrap this up, I want to share a quote from Jonathan Edwards, which says this, and it's right up there on the TVs. It says, prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. One of the most common threads that can be found in this revival and in the other two great awakenings and in all of the revivals that have happened um, is prayer. And it's prayer without ceasing that God would come and he would move amongst his people. So that's the great awakening. And I'm going to pass it off to Evan. So uh, it's, it's really interesting as Coulter was speaking, just because there's an awareness on my end as far as just some of the great awakening and things like that. But just, just the details and just how, you know, in, in my preparation for the Hebridean rev revival, which I'll talk about here in a second, um, as he's talking through just kind of the highlights of the things that really stood out and were impressionable from that the the movement of the great awakening it's like man that sounds a lot like what i was preparing for as far as the hebridean revival so um the the revival in the hebrides as it's often called um so uh islands off the off the coast of scotland so that's kind of a picture that you guys can see. So the, the orange color there um, is primarily what we're looking at, uh, specifically in the, the Isles of Lewis. Um, that's uh, the kind of the island where things first broke out, so to speak. And this was in 1949. So just a little bit of context for you guys, since uh, the Great Awakening felt like a little bit more close to home. This, uh, uh, I don't think, are any of us uh, Scottish? Yeah, okay, great. Um, so just a little bit of context for you guys. Uh, so again, more specifically, the islands of Lewis and Harris. Um, so overall, the local church and kind of the local community and culture uh, was much more uh, traditionally uh, Christian and reformed kind of in their way of thinking. Um, uh, uh, a culture and a context, uh, maybe not too unfamiliar to our own, but just very steeped in the scriptures and very familiar with Christianity, um, uh, the regular practice of Sabbath and prayer. Uh, it was a very common thing for families to have uh, like family worship nights uh, in their homes. And this, and I'll get to this in a second, even as there was a growing change in the tide of the culture, especially amongst young people and um, the gentleman who has a lot of firsthand accounts 
was a man by the name of Duncan Campbell, and he speaks of uh, younger generation kind of being 40 to 50 and younger. Um, there was a growing indifference to kind of the ways of uh, the ways of uh, Jesus, and but despite this, it was so ingrained in their culture, kind of their tradition. Like even the people who weren't really following after Jesus, there was still like this um, woven into the fabric of their society was like family gatherings, family scripture readings of the Psalms, things like that. So that's the context. Uh, a little bit more about their culture. Um, it says uh, the main industry was uh, textiles, and it was very profitable. And at the time, the island of Lewis produced more college graduates per capita than anywhere else in the British Islands. So it was very well educated. Um, their textile industry was very profitable. And it was actually for the people who were praying for a move of God, who were really keyed in and looking at like this growing indifference and apathy to um, uh, the ways of Jesus, were starting to notice the things that stood out to them and that they were convinced of was adverse changes in local politics, in the local economy, and then just like a growing sense of um, uh, poor morality. They were convinced that this was a, uh, a sign of God's displeasure in kind of how they were, their, their, their culture and their communities were living. So uh, that's, the, that's the, uh, the backdrop. There were some people who uh, testified that uh, just a couple quotes here that not a single young person attended public worship. So there was this really this this growing uh, older generation who is looking at the generations coming before them, and they're like, "We're even gathering on Sundays. Not only do we, uh, as Duncan Campbell puts it, everyone was very much uh, distracted by the the public house and the cinema, as he called it. That was kind of the the main attractions. But they were like, "Okay, that's that's day to day life throughout the week, but." We're even gathering on Sundays, and older generations are looking, going, where's the next generation? There's, like, no one attending. And so this is kind of where the concern started from. And so that's what kind of sparked the revolution. And specifically, it was two older, uh, two older women who, um, for years, had gathered with each other in prayer, um, like on a weekly basis or on a regular basis, and would just spend time, spend time in prayer with each other two elderly women, just hours and hours together in prayer. And as this started to build, this kind of cultural moment started to build uh, in the context of the island of Lewis specifically, uh, they started to say, hey, like, more has to be done here. And similar to what Coulter, Coulter described, like, their response was like, like, we have to pray. We have to pray that the Lord will pour out his spirit. Um, and they then would say, okay, we're meeting a couple times a week and it's, uh, it said that they would pray into like the early hours of the morning, just spend several hours in prayer. And this was um, specifically at, at the root of their heart towards this um, growing uh, condition in their culture. Um, they felt like we have to call on and pray on the promises of God. So this is a quote here. Um, they said, these two women said, we believe that God is a covenant-keeping God who must be true to his covenant engagements. And then uh, pulling from uh, the book of Isaiah, um, their core prayer was that, that God would pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. So these were the, these were the things that they, they, they clung to, they prayed, and what 
they started, formed, and kind of grew into a, uh, a into a little bit larger group in one of the local parishes on the island of Lewis. And it describes these men and women who would gather on a weekly, regular basis uh, at the initiation of these two women. Um, it describes these individuals as a group of men and women who seem to be living on the high plane of implicit confidence in God. So it, it describes it's this, this recognizing and calling on his promises, calling God to be faithful to his promises, saying, look, you say you will pour out water on the thirsty ground. On the streams that are running low, you will fill those to they flood the grounds again. And it was this collective group, a small group of people that started with this, not only calling on his promises, but just this high confidence that, no, 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 you, you can do this. You say you will do it, you can do it. And so this was the, the start of the move. And um, particularly, it, it was one, one night, essentially, when this group was praying uh, that um, in many different accounts just describe kind of the Spirit of God falling on, on, on the place at this local parish um, to the point where they said just not only the people there praying, it's kind of this core group of people being moved, but they noticed that that night it was a uh, praying on the Lord and a recognition of his presence falling on the place and them just even opening the doors of the parish and people just from the community are like walking um, uh, no one else supposedly knows what happened in the parish as far as just like the experience of the presence of God, but people are just like walking from the villages towards the parish without them going and telling them. Um, and so as this kind of this revival breaks out into um, the different islands around, uh, it's, it's, it's not something that's just confined to the parish, but it says it describes many different occasions of people who aren't even seeking God, just in their homes, out in the fields, just being overwhelmed by a few different things. One of them is just a, um, they talk about one of the main features is just an awareness of God, just people who are not seeking God, who have a, this growing indifference towards him, just becoming very acutely aware of uh, of God. And then secondly, the the con aware of the, um, the unrighteousness or the conviction of their of their sin, and so um, that being one of the main points that's talked about here, this movement initiated by prayer, and then it's this act very similar to what Coulter described. Um, the people who witnessed this firsthand, it's very much made clear like this wasn't something we did. This was something that we called on God, and He poured out His Spirit on the place, and so just this. Just this example in this description of just the spirit moving, people um, being changed who aren't even looking for God, and as far as in the parishes um, and prayer groups and things like that, just this this time, uh, this prolonged period of uh, weeks and months of people doing prayer gatherings or just worship gatherings in general, like three, four times a night at parishes. You know, no one goes home until three, four in the morning, kind of thing. And these are and and the spread, it, you know, it goes as far to say that people who are residents of um, when this was going when this was going on, people who were residents of the 
the, the Hebridean islands and things like that, if they were like in England or it talks about the spirit falling on them, even them being in different different areas, uh, not even on the island. So it's like, oh, they're, they're these stories that they come back and they talk about how it was their parents as they were sitting in the, you know, uh, in their house in the middle of the night and just being aware of the, um, being aware of the presence of God and correlating later on like, oh, our daughter was at Oxford in college and the same thing happened to her at the exact same time. And it was just this, just this outpouring of the spirit. Um, and so I think the things that strike me, it was the things that Coulter mentioned as well. It's just this, um, is prayer and just this, uh, this implicit confidence in God that he, uh, is, willing and able to stay true to his promises and that uh, just it's his act on um, pouring out his spirit, the kind of this time of refreshment on, uh, on the church and, and not, not just specifically the church, but even people who like aren't even, I mean, it's what Coulter described like these, what do you say? 70,000 people, just like just massive movements of the spirit, just people becoming aware of the presence of God, of the conviction of sin, and um, just almost to the point of being grieved to uh, do something about it, to seek out his His grace and his mercy. So um, those were the things that stood out to me. Again, that was in the, that was in the Scottish Islands in 1949, and uh, Kelly's going to share next. I don't know what Kelly's going to share about, but... Evan and Coulter did a great job of talking about something that they read about. And uh, fortunately, I mean, they're, they're pretty young. And fortunately, I'm old enough that I'm going to talk about something that I experienced. I was there during the first Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards was a friend of mine. Um, no, no, not then. I was, but another revival. You want to um, put this up? Um, some people call it the Jesus People Movement. A book was written a few years ago called The Jesus Revolution that has a fantastic, this is the, this is the cover of it, um, Matt Deason, I bought him this book and he took off the cover and so it's just not as exciting. Um, uh, but a popular album at the time was a Beatles album called The White Album. And it kind of looked like this. So literally it was a white album cover. Uh, so, so I'm going to talk about something that uh, personally affected me, affected Tracy, Jenny, personally affected uh, my wife and so many other people. And, uh, and what, I'm, what I'm hoping to do, though, it's, a, it's quite a challenge, honestly, because I experienced it. It was so real, so powerful, and so impactful that um, it was very difficult. And Matt asked me to do this. I thought, piece of cake. I mean, I've shared all kinds of pieces and stories, and i got so much to share, which is the problem. There's so many things that I could have talked about, but I, want you, I really wanted to take you there. So if you can with me, let your imagination run. You're a teenager or, or a, a college student, 1960s, 1970. Some of you youngins have read these things in the history books. But I want to take you back there. One of the things we find that they talked about is that um, during times of revival, um, almost always um, it's a time of great cultural upheaval, moral decay, and social crisis. This movement that hit... Um, not only was I a witness of, and Diana we were witnesses of, but we were swept up in this giant wave of the Spirit in such a way that we were changed. 
and we've never been the same since. The movement also caught our parents, my brothers and sisters, many of our friends, and it swept the nation. So, so I want to describe this. Picture this, and you can look at the, keep that VW psychedelic bus up because it says everything. Picture this. It was a time of a massive nuclear arms race with a dangerous superpower. There was deadly race riots in the cities. Three assassinations of key American leaders and a very unpopular Vietnam War that by 1970, I looked this up, put 500,000 young men during that year into combat. And most of them were forced by a national draft. I remember sitting around dinner. My older brother, who graduated in 1970, they were, my family was discussing what would he do? Would he join the service before and try to get in to become an officer and then maybe you don't get sent into war? Or would you run to Canada like a lot of people were doing? Or you go to jail? Or you go to Vietnam and you may never come back? And what if you don't believe in the war? Those were real issues that people had to wrestle with in addition to everything else. In addition, the contraceptive pill allowed for a sexual revolution that challenged old notions of marriage and monogamy and encouraged unrestrained sexual experimentation. In 1964, the Beatles had a hit, some of you may have heard, that was, I want to hold your hand. And literally, by 1968, the Beatles also had a hit that was called, the, the, the main line was, why don't we do it in the road? True. This is true. 15 of the 18 lines in that song I looked up, and I knew the song very well, but 15 of the 18 lines were, why don't we do it in the road? That was it. In the context of all this turmoil and challenge to authorities came the growing acceptance and proliferation of drug use. Harvard professors, get this, Harvard professors, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, experimented with and actively promoted in their classes with their students the use of psychoactive drugs like LSD to achieve a higher level of consciousness. Leary also espoused a radical counterculture idea that became a motto of that generation. Turn on, tune in, drop out. In 1967, 100,000 long-haired, barefoot, drug-dazed young people did just that, quit their jobs and relocated to Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. The hope was that communal living, free love, and liberal use of mind-altering drugs would usher in the age of Aquarius, where peace, love, and harmony would put an into war, materialism, and an injustice. The music, fashion, politics, drug use. I want you to picture this. Now you're in the church. Sexual practices, countercultural lifestyles of these hippies were an anathema to Bible-believing Christians. They represented everything the church was trying to stop. California pastor at the time, Chuck Smith, echoed the thoughts of many Christians then. Why don't they cut their hair, get a bath, and get a job? His wife, on the other hand, she was, God, this is. She was moved with compassion. 
Sorry, Diana. She wanted to reach out to them. When they did, they discovered that many of these hippies were disenchanted with the big hippie dream. We're looking, and they, they were looking for a counterculture vision that had real power, real love, and real answers. They found it in the person of Jesus, the long-haired radical teacher without a home or possessions. Chuck Smith started baptizing thousands of people at public beaches and setting up houses to disciple them. These former hippies didn't cut their hair, sometimes still smelled, but they traded their drugs for getting drunk in the spirit. They chose to get married rather than sleeping around. They started to show up at churches that would have them, singing loudly, shouting, right on, and far out, man, when the pastor made a good point. Suddenly, Jesus' people, worn out Bibles in hand, were everywhere, sharing with everyone. They started coffee houses, witnessed it on beaches, parks, and did hitchhiking evangelism, literally. Some like Greg Laurie, who's an, still a very, very well-known evangelist, found Jesus on the beach at 17. By 19, he was pastoring a church that exploded. The same time this was happening in the streets, the charismatic renewal hit the church. The forgotten gifts of the Spirit were rediscovered and experienced even in traditional denominations. This wasn't old, suit-wearing churchianity. People talked about being born again, baptized in the Spirit. And everybody do this with me. Everybody do this. They pointed their index finger in the air, which meant to all Christians they learned meant one way. There is one way. And I was thinking about this. I even realized that now that would be offensive to even say. But then it was literally, I remember my brother had talked to me that he was driving on the freeway. And he saw some kids in the other car and he went like this. And they went like this and they showed their Bibles that had some cool kids on the front of the Bible. It's called Reach Out. It was a paraphrased New Testament. New types of churches sprang up, teaching the Bible cover to cover. College ministries exploded. They will know you we are Christians by our love became the anthem. Biblical truth, the treasure hidden in the field. Apologetics, intelligently defending the faith, became a new college sport. Law student Josh McDowell was so irritated by the bold conviction of Christian students around him that he set off to prove them wrong and ended up coming to the faith himself. And he wrote this little book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It was used powerfully. It was as if the early church was somehow teletransported into the 20th century. Worship became spine-tingling, tangible, lingering, and famous rock stars got saved. They started writing fresh, new, powerful Jesus music. Even Bob Dylan joined in writing two Christian albums, including a popular radio hit, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Broadway had two huge musicals hits about Jesus. Multiple Christian-themed songs became secular radio hits. Contemporary Christian music was born. It had been estimated during the time several million people were added to the church, most of them young people, 
who were described as on fire or simply Jesus freaks. A Campus Crusade for Christ evangelism training event with Billy Graham called Explo 72 gathered 80,000 high school and college students for a week of workshops, music, and inspiration and challenged them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they did. Many people wondered what started the revival. Interestingly, I could not find a single leader or event that I could identify. Some would point to Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, but it seemed to take him by surprise as well. What happened on the beaches of California started happening everywhere else too. There was a movement. This movement was God-initiated and God-breathed. No one could take credit. Here's what I experienced. I was a seven-year-old camper at the YMCA Camp Reed in 1967. My dad was the director, and I lived there all summer. Some of the counselors were on fire Christians who would teach, who would lead the camp in prayer, worship, and simple 15-minute Bible or uh, chapel messages. It wasn't a Bible camp, but there was a focus on the wonder of the person of Jesus. He was the one that everyone wanted to be more like. There's something powerful about the worship song sang around the campfire. I, that, the year before I went to this camp, I got in five fights because people did things to me, like took my playground ball and punched them in the face. That next year I went back, I thought, I, I don't want to ever get in a fight again because Jesus wouldn't do that. There's something powerful about the worship song sang around the campfire. One night as we were walking back from the campfire, a counselor stopped us spontaneously, stopped us, and had us look up at the brilliant stars above us. And she started singing a song that was popular then. And I'll just give you a few of the lines. In the stars is handy work I see. On the wind he speaks with majesty. But what is that to me? Tell by faith I met him face to face. And now he walks beside me day by day. He's everything to me. Suddenly, I started weeping. This is God. Somehow, for the first time, this little boy understood that the powerful, majestic God of the universe loved me. He died for me. From that point on, I wanted to follow Jesus. But I was only seven years old. How do you explain that revelation? The only way I can explain is what took place that night on the waterfront of Fan Lake was the Spirit of God speaking to me. Like he was speaking to so many others all across the nation. Several years later, another counselor taught us how to receive Christ, and I stepped away from the campfire, looked up at the same stars, and asked him to forgive my sins and become the Lord of my life. For many years, when I go back up to that camp, and eventually became a counselor, it was like a spiritual pilgrimage. There was a revival of fire sweeping in the nation, but there at that camp, it was red hot. And it stuck. And I was the only one. My brothers and sisters all got saved. My parents later came to faith. 
Many of my best friends became Christians. One became a pastor. All of this happened outside of a church building. And it wasn't until my sophomore year I even went to church, except for on occasion. I was at the University of Oregon, Eugene, Oregon. I didn't know a church. I didn't know somebody who went to church. I had no idea where to go, but I felt convicted. There was a church I'd run by a few times and saw the sign. It was called Faith Center. Looked cool. So I borrowed somebody's bike. I rode, I called them up, found there was a Sunday evening service. I went into the service not knowing what to expect. There's 800 people with their hands raised, singing a beautiful chorus, worshiping together in wonder. Turned out, found out later, that church had just sent out a young pastor who had been the high school pastor. Sent out this young guy named Joe Whitwer, and he sent him to Spokane, and he was gonna start a church called Life Center in Spokane. Good luck for that ever working out. <laughs> Meanwhile, during the same period, my future wife, across the room, but across town, was experiencing the presence of God as well. She had grown up at church, but somehow was, um, but something was stirring in her parents. They started going to meetings at Gonzaga with Catholic nuns, charismatic Protestants, and anyone who wanted to experience the presence of God in this new spiritual movement. Worship led to testimonies, which led to prayer and more worship. People from different churches would then meet in her, her family's home and share stories of miracles and personal change. One of the young ladies who was attending that group started, shared a worship song that she had just written. That song, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice went around the world and is still sung in churches today. Rather than being a cynical preteen, a young teenager, Diana delighted in the worship, hung on every testimony, wanted to soak it all up. And she went to her own camp in the summer and found friends also wanting to find Jesus. And Jesus gave this shy, insecure girl identity, new friends and someday would give her a really cool Jesus-loving husband. So, in conclusion, I wanted to share five things that I think came out of this revival that we need today. One, the centrality of Christ. It wasn't Christ in this, Christ to fix this problem. Christ, it, was, it was Christ, Jesus, is the answer. One of the songs sang at that time. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. All problems and issues, the idea were swallowed up in him. They addressed all those issues, but the issues weren't the issue. It was Jesus, the hope of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Two, second thing, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. John 4, 23, Jesus said that. Some churches, if you've noticed, focus on the spirit. Others major on truth. True worshipers fully seek both. That was one of the marks of the time. Spirit and truth. The Holy Spirit and gifts and evidence that demands a verdict. 
and the Word of God. Yes. Three, the world will know that we are Christians by our love. That's what drew people, maybe more than anything else. There was something profound about how people loved each other and were challenged to love the unlovable. This is the next one, number four. He is still in the business of building his church from the least of these. The very pe people that Chuck Smith despised and, and disdained, had no vision for. Those were the very people that, his, his church, by the way, had been a pastor for several years, and the church was, it had several kind of, kind of unsuccessful pastoring um, experiences, and then the church he was in had sh shrunk, it was, was shrinking. And it turned into this worldwide ministry that exploded with the very people that he didn't see as having um, the right stuff. Last one, he can show up when and where we least expect him. So we need to trim our lamps. Thanks, Kelly and everyone. Uh, we're going to take a moment before we end in worship and pray, which is fitting as we're in the middle of 24-hour prayer, and if you show up during 24-hour prayer, there's lots of different things to pray for, but this is one, uh, and, and it's really heavy on our hearts. If you study these moments from these three revivals we just looked at, they were dark moments in culture, and, and if you look at the numbers, man, we have a heart for young people, a heart for Gen Z. They're perhaps the, the least spiritually engaged generation in all of American history. And so it's, it's really easy to look at our culture and the toxicity and the, and the anger and the outrage and the division and, and the spiritual apathy and millions of, uh, upon millions of people walking away from their faith, thousands upon thousands of churches closing, and, and we can see that, and we can study that, and we can witness that, but we have to see the other side. We have to see this, uh, because when, when you hold them both together, there is, there is anguish over the moment that we're living in, but, but an incredible amount of hope. So wait a second, the, these are the moments when God has chosen to sovereignly step in and change history. So that's what we're going to pray for here in a second. One final quote to share. This is what I heard from John Tyson earlier this week. Uh, he said, prayer is reminding God of his promises. It's reminding God, God, this is who you are. This is what you've promised. Do it. Do it now. So we're going to uh, circle up here in groups of three to four. And if you're one of those people, maybe you're new, maybe you're uh, nervous to pray out loud, 
literally the simplest prayer you could pray is, God, do something. We, we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know the timing. We don't know the magnitude. God, do something. Step in and make yourself known in this city. That's our prayer. So we're going to go ahead and, um, and, and mess up the room. We're going to take the, as much time as we can and pray into this. And then we'll finish at the end with one or two uh, final worship songs. But let's go ahead and uh, circle up and, and pray. If you don't feel comfortable praying out loud, you don't have to. You can just listen. But we're going to circle up and pray now.